I'm Robert Conti, Chief of the Metropolitan Police Department. Unfortunately, traffic fatalities are up in the district, and I need your help to reverse this trend. Seatbelt save lives and reduce the risk of death or injury. Click it or ticket. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics and Right on KPFT. My name is Egberto Willis. Today we have a great show for you. We have two special guests for you. First we have Mondale Robinson, who is the principal at Black Men's Voting Project. He's going to talk about how you get people to vote, how they did it in Georgia and elsewhere. And secondly, we have Ellen Lee Buigis, who is going to talk about fake news and critical thinking. Two very important guests in these times. But first, we're going to start with the president-elect. He is going to talk about the sacking of the Congress. Please call 713-526-5738, 713-526-5738. Support our programming. Support KPFT 90.1 FM. So call that number in support of our station. Uh, you can also go to kpft.org, kpft.org, and please send support in the name of Politics Done Right. But let's get busy. Yesterday, in my view, one of the darkest days in the history of our nation, an unprecedented assault on our democracy, an assault literally on the citadel of liberty and the United States Capitol itself, an assault on the rule of law, an assault on the most sacred of American undertakings, ratifying the will of the people in choosing the leadership of their government. All of us here grieve the loss of life, grieve the desecration of the people's house. But we, what we witnessed yesterday was not dissent, it was not disorder, It was not protest. It was chaos. They weren't protesters. Don't dare call them protesters. They were a riotous mob, insurrectionists, domestic terrorists. It's that basic. It's that simple. And I wish we could say we couldn't see it coming. But that isn't true. We could see it coming. The past four years, we've had a president who's made his contempt for our democracy, our Constitution, the rule of law, clear in everything he has done. He unleashed an all-out assault on our institutions of our democracy from the outset. And yesterday was but the culmination of that unrelenting attack. He's attacked the free press, who dared to question his power repeatedly calling the free press the enemy of the people. Language, at the time he first used it, I and others said, has long been used by autocrats and dictators all over the world to hold on to power, the enemy of the people. Language that is being used now by autocrats and dictators across the world, only this time with the imperator of an outgoing president of the United States of America. He's attacked our intelligence services, who dared tell the American people the truth about the effort of a foreign power to elect him four years ago, choosing instead to believe the word of Vladimir Putin over the word of those who've sworn their allegiance to this nation, many of whom had risked their lives in the service of this nation. 
He deployed the United States military, tear-gassing peaceful protesters in pursuit of a photo opportunity in the service of his re-election, even holding the Bible upside down. The action that led to an apology from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and an outspoken denunciation of the use of military for domestic political purposes from scores, scores of former military leaders and secretaries of defense, led by Secretary Cheney. He thought he could stack the courts with friendly judges who would support him no matter what. They were Trump judges, his judges. He went so far as to say he needed nine justices on the Supreme Court because, because he thought the election would end up in the Supreme Court, and they would hand him the election. He was stunned, truly stunned, when the judges he appointed didn't do his bidding, instead acted with integrity, following the Constitution, upholding the rule of law, not just once or twice or three times, but over 60 times. Let me say over 60 times. In more than 60 cases, in state after state after state. And then at the Supreme Court's judges, including people considered, quote, his judges, Trump judges, use his words, looked at the allegations that Trump was making and determined they were without any merit. Nothing was judged to put this election in question or doubt by any of these judges. You want to understand the importance of democratic institutions in this country? Take a look at the judiciary in this nation. Take a look at the pressure it was just subjected to by a sitting president of the United States of America. At every level, the judiciary rose at the moment during this election, did its job, acted with complete fairness and impartiality, with complete honor and integrity. When history looks back in this moment that just, we've just passed through, I believe it will say our democracy survived in no small part because of the men and women who represent an independent judiciary in this nation. We owe them a deep, deep debt of gratitude. And then there's the attack on the Department of Justice. Treating the attorney general as his personal lawyer and the department as his personal law firm. Through it all, we would hear the same thing from the, this president. My generals, my judges, my attorney general. And then yesterday, a culmination of an attack on our institutions of democracy. This time, the Congress itself inciting a mob to attack the Capitol, to threaten elected representatives of the people of this nation and even the vice president to stop the Congress from ratifying the will of the American people in a just-completed, free and fair election. Trying to use a mob to silence the voices of nearly 160 million Americans who summoned the courage in the face of a pandemic that threatened their health and their lives to cast that sacred ballot. I made it clear from the moment I entered this race that what I believe was at stake, I said there was nothing less at stake than who we are as a nation, what we stand for, what we believe, what we will be. At the center of that belief is one of the oldest principles this nation has long held. We are a government of laws, not of men, not of the people of laws. I said it many times in the campaign. Our, our democratic institutions are not relics of another age. They're what sets this nation apart. They're the guardrails of our democracy. And there's no president. There's, that's why there is no president who is a king. No Congress. That's the House of Lords. A judiciary doesn't serve the will of the president or exist to protect him or her. 
We have three co-equal branches of government, co-equal. Our president is not above the law. Justice serves the people. It doesn't protect the powerful. Justice is blind. What we saw yesterday in plain view was another violation of the fundamental tenet of this nation. Not only do we see the failure to protect one of the three branches of our government, we also saw a clear failure to carry out equal justice. I'm sure if you used to say in the Senate, excuse a point of personal privilege. A little over an hour and a half after the chaos started, I got a text from my granddaughter, Finnegan Biden, who's a senior in her last semester at University of Pennsylvania. She sent me a photo of military people in full military gear, scores of them lining the steps of the Lincoln Memorial because of protests by Black Lives Matter. She said, Pop, this isn't fair. No one can tell me that if had been a group of Black Lives Matter protesting yesterday, there wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been treated very, very differently than the mob of thugs that stormed the Capitol. We all, we all know that's true. And it is unacceptable, totally unacceptable. The American people saw it in plain view. And I hope it sensitizes them to what we have to do. We have a great, a, a, a great activist out here right now with us, uh, Mondale Robinson. He usually says W. Mondale Robinson is here with us. He is the founder of the Black Male Voter Project. He's also the National Political Director for Democracy for America. He's a political contributor to the Village Celebration. And I know that he also has a podcast that he's going to tell us about. Anyhow, welcome to Politics Done Right, Senor Mondale. How are you doing today? Peace, brothers. Good to see you outside of the confines of Netroots. So I ain't get to shake hands with you this year because of COVID, but it's good to see you. Hey, it's great seeing you, man. I, I, I tell you, you know, I'm from original from Central America. And we're a huggy, huggy culture. And this is hard on me. This COVID thing is hard on me. But you know what? Yeah. I'm going to see you. Hopefully, we're going to all be taken care of that we can see each other in August when we uh, have Net Roots right. 2021. We'll see what happens then. Anyhow, Mondale, how you been? Man, busy, man. Um, trying to, one, survive COVID, make sure I'm safe, and also ensure that, uh, you know, the, the politics of Black men are heard and also seen in this country. So, yeah, super busy with that, not to mention uh, the stuff we do at Democracy for America and the podcast Clickbaity Political Thirst Trap. I'll tell you what, let's, let's go give you a plug for that first. Tell, tell us a little <laughs> bit about your new, it's a new podcast, right? Yeah, I mean, we started it um, in March of last year. So, you know, we've, we've been going strong, man. Uh, it started out as an evening podcast. We did it two times a week. And then uh, right in the middle of it, we saw that it was something bigger than, and, and folk were vibing with it. So we took it to a morning podcast. So every morning around 8.30-ish to around 10.30 to 11 o'clock, we're on air um, on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, yeah, just streaming live, man, at the Ben Dixon Network. Um, oh, you're working with Ben the Dixon. The two co-hosts okay. are Ben Dixon and Marcus Farrell. Great. Yeah, yeah. I tell so you what, ben, give ben, us... joined the, ben, ben, ben joined the podcast later. Excellent. Give us the link that folks can go to to pick up that podcast the website. This message is sponsored by Amazon. I want to get back to kissing the cheeks of my grandbabies, making Sunday dinner with a house full of family and lots of laughs. <laughs> COVID-19 has changed how we live and how we feel, but now there are vaccines. It's okay to have questions. Now get the facts. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision about COVID-19 vaccines. It's up to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council. This message is sponsored by Amazon. I want to get back to kissing the cheeks of my grandbabies, making Sunday dinner with a house full of family and lots of laughs. laughs. 
COVID-19 has changed how we live and how we feel, but now there are vaccines. It's okay to have questions. Now get the facts. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision about COVID-19 vaccines. It's up to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council. And so forth. Yeah, so the easiest way to get the podcast is go to Facebook and go to Clickbaity political thirst trap clickbaity political thirst trap and you can find the podcast i mean we have some great whole uh some great visitors we had uh cornell west uh this past week we had nomiki cons we had um yeah we have a ton of people come join the show man it's a wonderful conversation it's a safe space for black men political thought so it was, it was formed as a uh you know a byproduct of black male voter project well, excellent. What I'll do is uh, when, when I get this blog out and this show out, I'll tag you guys directly on the, on the blog as well. Anyhow, tell me a little bit about um, Black Voter, Black Male Voter Project. Why did you, why did you found this, um, this organization? Uh, because I was in politics for 20 years and, uh, and I didn't hear any of the white consultants that control uh, democratic or progressive politics speaking in a way that was conducive to increasing black men's participation in electoral politics. Uh, we know that nearly half of the black men in this country that are already registered to vote, nearly half of the black men in this country that are already registered to vote have not voted in six consecutive elections. And that's not a critique of black men because we know people turn out to vote because resources are spent on them. And since no one was spending resources to prioritize black men, it was weird to believe that you were going to increase black men's participation in electoral politics, especially when you coupled the fact that they weren't prioritizing our needs and also the fact that black men don't have their basic needs met. And if you consider the lessons learned from Maslow hierarchy of needs, that tells us if a person don't have their basic needs met, they can't think about things that are self-actualization. And the way we play politics in this country, it seems a self-actualization. And so black men didn't have time to think about voting because no one was talking to them about the fact that uh, politics could really address, uh, if done properly, it could address the fact that we are transient in housing, that we are underemployed, that we are, if we are even employed, that we could use politics to address the fact that we are over-sentenced or overrepresented in those who are killed by cops or overrepresented in those who are suspended or expelled from school. These are all political issues that weren't being presented to black men in a real way. The way the politics come to black men are a very transactional way. Two months before an election, talking about uh, a candidate prioritizing a personality or talking about a party that didn't really speak to the needs of black men. So we, re we, th we threw all traditional campaigning out of the window and revamped the way we came up with politics and how we played politics and presented it to black men in a hope that we can expand the electorate and bring more brothers out to the poll. I think that is so important. You know, one of the other things that I'd like to, and I'd like you to address this as well. There's a whole lot of, I mean, there were millions of dollars, billions of dollars that was spent in the last election. And uh, what I notice is a whole lot of consultants get these $10,000 contracts, these $15,000 contracts, these $50 million contracts. But somehow, uh, from what I've understood, uh, the different groups that comprise, let's say, the Democratic Party, it's usually not spread out to these different ethnicities, people who can better address within their communities that which will bring people out to vote. Is that part of what the reason that you formed this to ensure that you can say, this is what I represent. You want this vote, fund this vote. I mean, so, I mean, you're not, you're not off. I mean, the Democratic Party on the presidential election last cycle, 2020, spent $1.3 billion. And less than 5% of that went to people of color. Not just black people, less than 5% went to all people of color. So when you consider that uh, less than 5% of the consultants of that 1.3 billion went to black people when black people overwhelmingly make up the democratic base percentage wise. It is absolutely weird. Um, yeah, I think, I think our, our, our reasoning and our, uh, the reason we founded black male voter project has everything to do with the fact that had everything to do with the fact that uh, we needed to address our issues in, a, in an effort to bring black men to the poll, to expand the number of brothers that were voting. And we could no longer wait on the Democratic Party and all of its auxiliary, including his candidates, to do the work of in 
engaging us in a way that was uh, one culturally appropriate and also one that was effective. So we created Black Male Voter Project not as a benefit to the Democratic Party, but as a benefit for our community because we know when Black men vote, uh, there are more progressive ideas and candidates elected and that's beneficial to the entirety of our community. So the, the, the need to form Black Male Voter Project has been there. I mean, for 150 years, if you consider that Black men were the first demographic out of, after white men with the passage of the 15th Amendment to get the voting, the right to vote. But anybody that believes that the 15th Amendment actually gave Black men the right to vote have not been paying attention to American politics. What it actually did was make us the first people to be victims of voter suppression. And it has been consistent if you consider the fact all the ways that our white people now try to hinder people from voting, uh, i.e. criminal records, i.e. voter identification, i.e. Uh, the closing of polls, i.e. shortening of hours. All of these things negatively affect Black men uh, more than most demographics uh, in this country. No, so um, we created we Black Male Voters Project as a way to, as a way to inform brothers and to, to let them know that voting uh, is, is part of it, but being civically engaged is more important. And we know that when once brothers are civically engaged, then voting will become a byproduct of that new mentality. Now, I understand that you're currently in 13 states, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Texas, Arkansas, Ohio, Indiana, New York, and New Jersey. Do you intend to make this a 50-state proposition? Well, we are currently in 17 states now. Um, oh, so, so okay. uh, we, we, yeah, we're, we're already expanding. We're in Michigan. We're in uh, Wisconsin, Ohio as well. So, yeah, um, and Kentucky also. So, yeah, we are we're definitely uh, it's, it's, it's our job to be wherever black men are. Um, I don't know about 50 states because, you know, there's 220 brothers in in uh, in uh, North Dakota or something. You can't forget about Alaska. North Dakota, Mondale. We can't forget about North Dakota, but I don't think it's efficient, uh, <laughs> effective and efficient to uh, we, we have a better chance of calling those brothers, asking them if they want to move down south somewhere where the weather's better. <laughs> But I mean, we we're definitely trying to be in places where uh, black men exist in a way that, you know, that's that's significant. And if, if you think about it, um, it's the missing piece. Our when we when we started Black Male Voter Project, our goal was to close the gap between black men and black women. So the 10 percent of where, you know, black women vote higher than black men. Um, that was our goal to shut that down this year by five percent and um, and in the future by making it, you know, at least uh even or even where black men are voting at a higher percentage, if, if possible, then sisters knowing that this is a beneficial to the work uh, that's necessary to, to bring, bring black men uh, into the political fold in a way that their issues are seen and their voices are heard. Now, uh, Tracy, uh, Stacey Abrams in uh, Georgia was very successful in uh, bringing out people of color and uh, people of color and uh, underrepresented people, the works. Did you work with her this cycle in Georgia at all? I mean, I, I uh, so not, not directly. Uh, we, we both sit at the C4 table. Um, and um, so... I mean, Fair Fight is her organization, so we 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 bothly we we both sat on those calls. Her organization and my organization sat on the C four calls uh, on a weekly basis, sometimes multiple times a week, and uh, we, there was information sharing happening, of course. Um, and then also at the end of the cycle, uh, Stacey Abrams' organization sent us a, a, a check. Also, so shout out to Stacey for that. Uh, her her saying our work and saying that this is this is a work that we need. Uh, this is work that she wanted to support. So shout out to the team over at Fair Fight for doing that. Um, but Black Male Voter Project is a unique uh, monster. We we reach out to organ. We do the work that some organizations, most organizations can't. If you consider in Georgia, there's nearly one million Black men that are registered to vote, and before 2020. 460,000 of that million had not voted in six election cycles, federal election cycles. So that wow. means they didn't vote for Stacey Abrams in 2018. They didn't vote in 2016. They didn't vote for Barack Obama in 2008 or 12. But of those brothers, we turned out 104,000 black men. So black men that were registered to vote before 2008 that did not vote for Barack Obama in 2008, 2012, nor did they vote in 2018. They came out to the polls this election cycle, 104,000. So you can Many actually brothers came to the poll. You can claim a piece of that action that's actually got the win. That that's huge. An extra hundred thousand men. That's huge. Now, um, what's your what? How do you do it? Now you don't go to KFC and ask them for their secret sauce. Come on, brother. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I know. I know. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah. So what we do is we, we just we shut down um, the transactional nature of campaigning. We don't come to brothers two months before an election. We actually spend an entire year talking to brothers uh, about their issues. And before we start talking to them, we spend the first part of that year listening. We have these conversations called Brothers Be Voting, where there are no cameras. There are no women. There are no white people. It's just black men in a room. And we're listening to brothers and we overpopulate for regular black men, brothers who are uh, drug dealers, gang members, people who don't vote regularly. And we are like, we invite one or two political people in the room, but not so they can filibuster the conversation, just so they can listen and see how wrong they're getting in politics. And from that, from those conversations, we build out a national platform with the top three issues for black men. And we go around and engage brothers on those issues. And we, before we uh, get into any political engagement, we ask brothers five or six questions. Those questions are uh, what's missing from your community? Who are the leaders in your community? What's necessary to make your community whole? What's necessary to make you whole? And who and who uh, do you see as a leader individually? So we, we take those three issues and build out uh, a platform talking about those five questions or five or six questions. And then we engage brothers five or six times around those issues and also those questions. And after that, we begin what looks like a traditional campaign where we start talking uh, how politics affect one, the issues that they said were important to them, plus with those national issues as well that we identify through our brothers be voting conversations and from there we start persuading brothers on how you can make a change how you can engage these issues and how voting can change those issues not that voting is the only tool that's necessary to get us free but it's definitely a tool to put in your box to help us get closer to liberation you know Mondale, that that is magic the thing about it is uh the thing that you said there you just listen. You first start listening. You start trying to develop a relationship with them and not just, I need your vote. It's developing a relationship and seeing what actually will make a difference within that community. That is magic. And that, that will always work. Now, I want to kind of go on a little sidetrack here. Um, we've been seeing over the, between 2016 and 2020, first of all, in 2016 and then past 2016 to 2020, that black males have supported uh, the, the likes of Donald Trump in a manner that I find uh, I, I don't understand. What can you tell me about that? It, it's not true. It's not. Okay. Uh, so Explain, like, please. Yeah. The, yeah. So, so yeah. So there was an exit poll. This, this whole, like the narrative uh, came out like after 2016 because 12, you know, 12% of in 2016, about 12 to 15% of black men voted for Donald Trump. But what people forget is that every election cycle, somewhere between eight and 15 percent, 18 and 20 percent, I'm sorry, 18 and 18 percent of black people vote Republican. This is not new. Actually, if you look at uh, every Republican nominee for president, Donald Trump did worse than all of them, except for Mitt Romney and, and, and John McCain, which were two Republican candidates who lost the presidency, a presidential election. Um, so and in this election cycle, Donald Trump actually did not, no better with black men than he did in 2016, which is where black men always fall. The idea that black men are, are running to Donald Trump is a, is a myth that was passed by one consultants who were saying all throughout the year that, one, there's no motivation for black people to go to the poll. And then secondly, black men are going to vote more for Donald Trump because he was, he was braggadocious or he was rambunctious. And I saw all types of people play to this narrative from posters to Barack Obama. I even heard Barack Obama say, oh, black men like Donald Trump because of rap music and rap music is appeasing to Donald Trump. But if you look at rap music, uh, this is this shows that uh, there's a disconnect between Barack Obama and the black men in this country because if you look at rap music before donald trump ran for president there was always songs about donald trump and his money but when he began to run for president there was a song called f donald trump written by <laughs> nipsey hustle and yg yes. in 2015 and there's not been a positive song in rap music about donald trump since then so the world continues to try to play black men in a certain way but we continue to show up and the reason i know this is because not only in uh, Georgia, but in all the states we worked in, we saw black men voting at record numbers in the Democratic primary, even in most cases, higher than what they did in 2008 for Barack Obama, this election cycle. And to vote in a Democratic primary is to say that you voted, you were voting against what Trump stood for. But people just rejected this idea and continue with this bad narrative. Um, I don't know why I think people get a kick out of, uh, you know, 
kicking black men when we're down or whatever. Well, actually, that that is a that is a common. Let me tell you, that is one of the reasons I do independent media. One of the reasons that I do independent media is because a lot of times uh, a narrative gets placed, whether it starts at Fox News or it starts somewhere else, and then everybody pick up on the same piece. And as opposed to any somebody else picking up somebody like, let's go to the uh, Black Male Voter Project and interview these guys who are sitting with these folks and find out what the real story is. Somebody grabs the narrative and take off with it. And, and to some extent, that's sort of a disrespect that I find in today's politics on all sides. And yeah. that is that yeah. um, a lot of times people are asking questions of, uh, of, of a consultant that has nothing to do with that community. And they're asking them, what do you think about that? I, I recently was at a, an, in a board meeting and I, I, I didn't say anything. I just kind of smiled when I mentioned something about how people of color saw the, this, the, the, uh, in, not, saw the insurrection that we just had. You know, to people of color, that wasn't any, nothing strange. To people of color, it was like, we get an opportunity for you to see that people can act the fool, people can be violent, people can be killers, and police officers are veterans, back your neighbors. Exactly. Exactly. But when we say that, when black folks or Latinos or other people say that, it's like, oh, you're just you're just saying that. Well, America got to saw on national TV. These people ransacked the Capitol, and most of the police did what again, Mr. Mon- Mr. Robinson? Step aside and let them do it. Exactly. Let me let me let, let me let me just say something to you. I, I want to go a step further and and I hope I'm not offending you when I say this. It is absolutely true that uh what we what we just saw was a ransacking of the Capitol. But what we actually saw was that patriotism in America is synonymous with white supremacy. Uh, we saw veterans. I'm a Marine Corps veteran. We mm-hmm. saw veterans, we saw police officers, we saw elected officials show up and try to take over and overthrow the government. America is a banana republic and Donald Trump has a large role to do with it. So we, we just gotta be honest in all of these terms and all of this, this shenanigans that we, we keep playing, playing lip service with, it's dangerous because what's happening is America is on display and its whiteness is ravaging uh, this, this democracy right now. I, if, unless people are willing to address it, we are, we are, we are at a dangerous uh, pressure point in our, in our space. And that is, that is important to note because I, I've said that on my program as well. You have to understand exactly what's going on if you're going to fix the problem. And what's going on is there is a, there's a sect in this country, that white sect in this country, that uh, if things don't go the way that they think it should go, they are willing to destroy the country to ensure Absolutely. that it does. And Absolutely. I don't know why you thought that would offend me, but I'm, you know. <laughs> you know, some, some, people, some people don't, some people don't, I appreciate you doing independent media and doing it right. Um, so I don't know why I thought it would offend you. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just kind of curious. But anyhow, uh, Mondale, uh, when I'm about to close every interview, I asked, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Hmm. Um, that's a good question. I think, I think for me, um, I like to tell people, you know, why, what the difference between me doing politics and some of my white friends that do politics and why I got into politics, right? So um, if you would have asked me why I, why I do politics, I would have told you that um, I, I, didn't, I didn't start doing politics. Politics started my life, um, partly because my father, uh, who was the son of a sharecropper, uh, was, was born on a uh, plantation, meaning he was the son of a sharecropper. And uh, he got a felony conviction for smacking a white boy who whose father owned the farm because the white boy smacked my grandmother and knocked her off the porch. Wow. And his punishment was nothing. But for my father, they had first my family had to run, had to take him to Virginia and hide him for two years so that the Klan wouldn't kill him for hitting a white man. But when he came back, he got a felony conviction. And that that limited our lives and what we did. It, it forced us to grow up in poverty. Um, because it started a cycle that didn't end. Um, you know, the F, the F is a scarlet letter for black men in this country. And uh, we, we growing up in, in Eastern North Carolina, extremely poor, and my dad having a felony conviction. Uh, my entire life, I wondered why my dad, this man who could do anything from uh, pavement, laying pavement to putting roofs on houses to 
building houses almost, but we were always poor. It, it blew my mind. Coupled that with the fact that uh, the white man that was a fire chief of my hometown was the same white man that sprayed my mother with fire hose her entire life for being downtown at the dark only because she was black. Uh, so growing up in North Carolina, even though I'm 41 years old, I got to witness uh, remnants of segregation and Jim Crow in a way that most people thought was over my entire life. Um, and that's why I do politics and that's why a Black Male Voter Project exists. Mondale, you do it well. Mondale Robinson, founder of Black Male Voter Project, National Political Director for Democracy for America, among many other titles. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. A former partner at McKinsey & Company, Helen Lee Voigis, has, uh, has helped transform more than 25 firms. Over the course of a 25-year career, she has raised hundreds of millions of dollars in capital, renegotiated billions of dollars in debt, and brought dozens of companies into the black. Buig has lectured around the world. She sits on multiple boards, including those of companies in retail, manufacturing, oil and gas, renewable energy, and automotive parts sectors. She graduated magna cum laude from Princeton University and earned an MBA from the Harvard Business School. Buig established the Reboot Foundation to promote more critical thinking. Welcome aboard, Helen. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted. I am so sorry for mispronouncing your last name. Uh, my my other language is Spanish, not not uh, French. So bear with me there, okay? No worries at all. None of my American friends know how to pronounce my married last name either. Well, well, you know, I, well, good. I don't feel all that bad after. <laughs> Anyhow, we're going to talk about fake news today. You are the fake news expert. You founded a company called Reboot, where you say, where it's, it, the tagline is elevating critical thinking. And let me just tell you, I love your website and I have some critical questions for you. Perfect. Let's get started then. Now, why did you, first of all, why did you form this company? I mean, your, your pedigree says that this isn't what you do. <laughs> Well, like any foundation, I think it starts with a personal story. Um, the personal story is that my daughter, who is now 10, I founded the Reboot Foundation in 2018. She was just around seven years old. And she came on one day and she said, Mom, I'm trying to do a research paper. I need your computer uh, because I need to go on Wikipedia. And that got me thinking, you know, when I was at, when I was seven years old, when we had to write research, well, research paper, meaning 10 sentences, really, um, I would go to the Encyclopedia Britannica. And clearly, the way children gather information today, just like for adults, over 90% of adults gather information online, um, children do the same. And I started asking myself, what are we doing differently in our children's education in light of the fact that they predominantly gather information online in this digital age? And that was the really the genesis of the need for teaching more critical thinking at a younger age. Now you're gonna say, how did you make that jump relative to the digital age? I think the clear message is we all know that any search engines, let alone social media, their algorithm is structured so that it prioritizes what websites or what sites you've been on already. So it's very much geared towards selective thinking. And hence, it's important that we really give the building blocks and the tools necessary to children, even at a young age. And that is critical thinking. And so in, in effect, you're teaching them how in this ocean of information, how to best select the information that I don't want to say the, the, the information that best not suits their needs, but it's more factual to what they're doing. It's not only factual to what they're doing, but it's also about learning to review opposing views, um, which is obviously what is lacking in our society today, as demonstrated by the Capitol attack yesterday. Um, and I think these are kind of the skills that um, when it's very difficult online to differentiate even what a blog is, let alone from institutional sources, the capacity to take a step back, 
realize your own cognitive biases and think about your own thinking when you are evaluating, researching, or forming your convictions. These are very critical skills, especially in this day and age. And practically speaking in the workforce as well, as you know, um, any um, surveys that are done of people talking about what are the critical skills necessary for the future generation, critical thinking skills comes as one of three. And yet, when we did our survey at the Reboot Foundation, majority of the people that we surveyed believed that not only did they not get a critical thinking um, education from K to 12, but that their children are not getting it either. Well, uh, first of all, um, I'm glad that we are talking after the insurrection that occurred a couple of days ago, because I think that is one of the, that is the culmination of what can occur when uh, misinformation, fake news get out of hand. So we, we are not just talking in, in, in platitudes here, we're talking about something that actually happened. So how do you define Yeah, just as much as a capital attack, even about COVID itself, COVID-19 itself. Right. If you think about the number of myths that people believe and the amount of fake news that there is around COVID and how the virus spreads to what needs to be done, it's pretty mind-blowing. And that obviously is life and death matters. Now, uh, define fake news. How do you define fake news? It's true that fake news was something that was really coined um, in the last election. And originally it was uh, coined when um, they discovered that the quote that the Pope supported Donald Trump came out of Macedonia. And that was the genesis of fake news. I think now more and more people and journalists are becoming more specific in differentiating what is fake news. So distinguishing what is misinformation versus disinformation, for example, as you alluded to earlier yourself. Misinformation is obviously um, mistakes, mis um, somewhat misleading information, whereas disinformation is outright hoaxes and lies. And it's true that fake news kind of combobulates both of those arenas today which is probably something that we need to be more careful about identifying. I think it's, it, you just did, made a very important statement that I think people need to understand. And that is differ, differentiation between misinformation and disinformation. Misinformation at times can be not benign, but could have been just erroneously, as you've discussed on your page uh, at, at uh, Reboot, what is it? Reboot-foundation.org where you actually talked about uh, how uh, you identify misinformation based on, I think, uh, uh, having complete information and misremembering and that sort of thing. There, there's a difference between misremembering something and outright lying about a particular event. Now, what we have in uh, that created the insurrection this week uh, was created by outright disinformation, correct? That's right. <laughs> That's right. And what we have about mask wearing, et cetera, that would be considered disinformation as well, correct? Absolutely, and, and the reality is, is most people, um, at least in the COVID situation, it is a question of media literacy because a lot of people were gathering information from sites that were unknown. Very few people would actually go to the CDC site to gather information. So there were myths, everything from um, in the springtime, because of weather and temperature, COVID would disappear. Well, we went through the summer, it didn't disappear to um, questions around um, where, where it spread from as well. So there was a lot of different myths. And unfortunately, it comes, it's, it's just a demonstration of some of the challenges that we have where people don't know as well how to discern and gather the factual information because the internet is wonderful. We have a wealth of information, but it's also very difficult to navigate. There is no distinction between blogs, between opinions, between facts, what is an institutional source, what is a sponsored source. And then all of this is just accentuated even further and aggravated by the utilization of social media, 
which is even more disturbing because over 90% of news that people gather comes via the social media platform. Now, Helen, one of the interesting things about it is you are not a um, you're not a fanatic of TED Talks because uh, you don't think it presents enough of a venue to really extrapolate on information. Um, I, I gave I, a TED Talk. <laughs> I know exactly you did give a TED Talk, but let, let me just say one thing. I I do a show one hour, uh, five days a week, and I do a blog where I do about three to five pieces every day. I agree with you. To get real information out, you have to spend the time. You have to be able to do do the work. Um, how can we... We have 24-hour news sources right now. It seems like we have all the necessary parameters to fulfill your wants. And your wants is that... Breaking up is hard to do. But when it comes to your wireless carrier, you should have left a while ago. You deserve better. Xfinity Mobile. Break free from the big three. Get unlimited with 5G included for $30 a month when you get four lines on Xfinity Mobile. Prices may vary and are subject to change. Reduce speeds at 20 gigabytes per line. Amazon is offering sign-on bonuses up to $1,000. Plus, get up to $20 an hour for select roles. The best part? We're hiring near you. So start now to take home something greater. New, higher wages with a sign-on bonus, a range of real benefits, and career growth opportunities in a top-rated workplace. So earn more and see how great pay and sign-on bonuses can lead to a greater life for you. Go to Amazon.com apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. We can actually structure information in a manner that it's complete. Talk to me about that. The, the challenge is it's not the work that the journalists are doing that's the problem. It's the challenges that you as a journalist yourself is facing in terms of trying to get your articles out via Twitter. Um, it's, it's all around that instant gratification. I'm not even gonna go into the discussion of influencers or whatnot, but the fact of the matter is um, for, you, for your articles to be seen, um, if it goes through via social media, via Twitter, you're just going to get that many clicks and that many more uh, sightings. The problem is probably because your articles are fact-checked and they're not as sensational in terms of preying on people's emotions with the titles or with the content, in social media, it's not going to be high on the ranking because the algorithm of Facebook and all these social media sites is, and even they will admit, that what takes higher priority in what shows up when you uh, go on Facebook is around content that is uh, prey to your emotions because that keeps people on their platform longer. I must admit that in given the titles of my programs, I try to get a, some sort of a balance. Uh, the, the articles all factual. I try to get a balance. In fact, when we're posting your articles, we are going to fight like hell to make sure people see the good words that you have to say by trying to give a title that will hit an emotion, but with some sort of a fact-based uh, instinct in it. Now, I have a, an important question here because you're, you're an MBA. You're also um, uh, magna cum laude, all these great things in the American uh, school or college university system. I, I, I go under the premise that in order for misinformation to grow or for any seed to grow, you have to have fertile ground, fertile land from which to have it sprout. How... how is indoctrinating someone in whatever form, whether it is on your history, a country's history, uh, how does that allow uh, what we've seen? Uh, I, I, let me ask it a different way. I look at the, 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 the insurrection that we had this week. And much of what I see in that insurrection is not that these are bad people. No. What I see is that these are people that have heard about an Americana that has never existed. These are a people that believe they're losing something they've never had. And these are a people that the system 
has actually uh, hurt looking for a scapegoat. And I, I mean, think it's a, it's a parallel. It's a parallel reality show that kind of is going on, right? Right. Um, I, 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 to I totally agree with you that these are not ill-intentioned people. Um, but there are studies that show that even people who are well-educated, who are trained, if they keep continuing hearing lies and are pounded with faulty information, even if their initial instinct is to question the subject matter, just by default of being pounded with the same information, the brain actually starts believing it. So that's, that's one phenomenon that's going on. The second is it goes back to the fundamentals of the Reboot Foundation. If we don't build on building blocks of critical thinking skills, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy, it's not comfortable to always challenge your initial instinct or convictions that you have. It's actually very uncomfortable. Very. Uh, and, and, and so unless you really make an effort to challenge your own thinking, which is the ultimate liberty if you think about it, um, if you don't have the habit of doing that, then the fallback is to read things, absorb things without really questioning the source or even whether or not there might be a different point of view or whether or not perhaps because of your ex prior experience or your uh, misfortunes that you might not have a cognitive bias about a matter. So that's why I think it's a combination of what we need to do in terms of media, both governments, social media companies, we really need to rethink how information is being distributed. But more importantly, I think we need to provide that education to our children, as well as us adults, again, as reminders that critical thinking is indeed absolutely necessary in this digital age. Helen, what you just said there is the magic of our conversation. First of all, the ultimate freedom is, in fact, the ability for one to continue to not change their minds, but learn, which that learning may change their minds. Yes. That is important. And let me just tell you that the experiment you just talked about, I did with Rush Limbaugh. I spent okay. one day listening to Rush Limbaugh, and uh, I did it intentionally so I could get out of it later on. I did it intentionally. And the idea was at the end of that week, I started falling back onto some of the ridiculous things that he said. I, it, actually, it actually sounded plausible. And when I saw somebody do something that triggered what he said, that was my initial reaction. So I actually did the experiment on myself and then slapped myself and said, oh, don't forget. Back to reality. <laughs> right. You got that from Rush Limbaugh. Um, so, I mean, I think that last statement that you made is is imperative that we can get across to people the, the the biggest freedom is the ability to learn and not not let your biases be the only thing that's one of the reasons in the work that i do i i don't i i, I am a progressive very very progressive person who entertains the right all of the times entertain in in, in what we do all of the times now in in that light and remember the original question that I asked you about having the, 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 the fertilized soil, therefore misinformation to grow. How important is, is what that base is? Let me give an example. I want to be clear on this one specifically. We are an exceptional country and we have been so, uh, you know, uh, we, we are the bastions of morality. A lot of those people that were marching there really believe that and they think there are changes i mean we are the country where a whole lot of bad things have occurred that we have kept out of the history books how has that not been in some sort of a way fake information that actually challenges what's occurring today 
So I'm going to ask you to expand a little bit more in your question because I know it's an important question and I want to address it. Here's here's the thing. Let, let, let me give a let me give a classic example. There are two things special about America. We are a very strong capitalist country, and number two, we were completely and entirely based on slavery. Okay, and not only black slaves, but all slaves that the people who built the Pacific Railroad, they were partially slaves, but we, we don't call them that. We can, we can enumerate all these particular issues. That is our foundation. Now, in that being one's foundation, to have a class of people believe that you are, uh, that you are exceptional in these things, don't that then make an insurrection that is violent in its nature, given your violent origin, not seem all that out of whack and that anything can trigger it then? So that goes back to people's sensation of entitlement or values that uh, people are based on. And I think, um, I, you know, I'm not trying to bring everything back to critical thinking, mm -hmm. but it goes back to, um, that sense of entitlement originates from your original biases. Exactly. And I think the important thing is, especially even in universities today, and this is something that I struggle with, we teach people how to write a very good thesis and a paper, which includes an introduction and a conclusion and evidence to back it up. But we don't actually challenge um, even scholars to actually look at the counter arguments to see if there are flaws in your original thesis and the evidence. And that, by definition, nurtures people's biases. Right. And then we keep building on it because the thesis by definition is drawing upon other scholarly books. So what do people do when they are studying something? They will go to the footnotes, go to um, the introduction chapter titles and look for those paragraphs that justify, again, their original bias. So, so this, this, is, this is fundamentally what critical thinking is is supposed to avoid, it's supposed to help you avoid. And, and, that, and that is why I, I, don't, I don't want to, I, I don't want to change the tone of your question, but I do think that a lot of that basis relies on the fact that we're not doing enough critical thinking. Helen Lee Biggie. Buig. <laughs> Helen, Helen Lee Buig. It was my pleasure to have you on Politics Done Right. But before I go, I'd like to ask you, how can people get in touch with you? How can people work with you with your new organization, uh, Reboot? Thank you. So our website is reboot-foundation.org. Um, all of our studies and material are guides for parents or guides for teachers. Um, they are all online free. Um, and you can sign up for a newsletter where we will send you updates of new studies and articles we publish. Last question, what did I, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't ask you? I just, it's, it's not a question, but I do wanna applaud all journalists for what you're doing because I know that this day and age, it can feel very frustrating, um, especially around the things that are going on when you have President Trump that used to denigrate really the solid investigative work of journalists and what you're trying to do, um, I can only imagine it's frustrating. And I do wanna applaud you for the work that you're doing because if we don't have journalists like yourselves, then the information that people can use to guide their decision-making is very much lost. So. I, I did want to conclude with that. Thank you so kindly, Helen. And please, folks, Reboot Foundation, the founder of Reboot Foundation, thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Then Right. Thank you. 
I hope you enjoyed that. Please, folks, don't forget, call 713-526-5738, 713-526-5738, and become a member of KPFT. You can also go to kpft.org, kpft.org. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Then Right, and you know how I end this, baby. I am what? Out. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Now serving F-27 at DMV window number 16. Okay, Rose, we're second in line. Perfect, Rose. You remembered the birth certificate? Yes, and we have our electric bill. Excellent. We'll be Real ID ready in no time. Real ID ready to visit our grandson Ricky at Fort Bragg, then fly to New Orleans for Jazz Fest. Pardon me, are you talking to yourself? <laughs> I'm sorry. I guess I am. Talk yourself into Real ID readiness by May 3rd, 2023. Make a plan at dhs.gov slash Real ID. Amazon is offering sign-on bonuses up to $1,000. Plus, get up to $20 an hour for select roles. The best part? We're hiring near you. So start now to take home something greater. New, higher wages with a sign-on bonus. A range of real benefits and career growth opportunities in a top-rated workplace. So earn more and see how great pay and sign-on bonuses can lead to a greater life for you. Go to Amazon.com apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.